At every ARBA convention, we're greeted by a banner that reads, For five days, you don't have to explain to anyone why you raise rabbits. Our hobby sometimes raises eyebrows. You show what? But once you step inside, you'll discover a world full of passionate, interesting people all working toward the ultimate goal, best in show. What can I do for you? Well, I'm looking for a white rabbit. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. If I were looking for a white rabbit, I'd ask the Mad Hatter. Okay, rabbit, you force me to use force. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Welcome everyone to episode 29 of podcast Best in Show. My name is Alan Messick. I'm in California and I'm enjoyed uh, each and every week by my co-host. That's Bryony Smith, the chair of the ARBA Standards Committee. She is, of course, also graceful and posh. Bryony, <laughs> how are you doing there in Kansas this week? Well, I don't wouldn't say I'm so posh right now. I'm like in leggings and a an oversized <laughs> t-shirt because it's kind of late at night. But um I, and I've got all all of my, I guess, posh stuff packed for convention this year. It is almost here. I'm so excited. You know, for a long time it seems like something that's way in the distance, and then all of a sudden it's here and I have so much to do, but I can't wait. All right, I don't mean to be a buzzkill, but I'm going to ask you this question right now because we are on the heels of this convention, this big family reunion. All right, ready? Do you want to give us any indication as to what you'll be wearing at the ARBA's red carpet event, the ARBA banquet on Monday night? Well, I will be in my heels and um, check them out. They're rather nice. Everyone, um, th- if there's a reason to go to the banquet, it's because what Brian wears. And this is not a new thing. This is an every year thing. Well, my my planned dress, although I always do, you know, bring it back up just in case. Um, I actually scored a really cool find at a vintage store for $17. As you normally would. You were a vintage store and bargain shopper. That's half the fun of it. Having something you know nobody else has and also not spending much money on it. <laughs> hence why I have been addicted to Poshmark for the last two years. Yes, same here. And hence why my closet is bulging and my bank account is still solvent. Exactly. Well, we've had some great podcast um, comments over the last few weeks. And uh, we're going to read some of those today. I'm going to start and I know you've got two to read as well. And a reminder to all of our listeners, we know that you are hitting the freeways, hitting the interstates or or airlines to get to the Louisville convention. We know this episode is going to be aired when you are doing your journey to the big family reunion there in Louisville. Um, but we, we want to remind, remind everyone to to get hooked on this podcast. Brian and I started this uh, earlier this year and we've got, gosh, we're at episode 29 now. We've got loads more to come for you, but you can find links to all of our previous and current episodes by following and liking The Rabbitry on Facebook. It's, it's as simple as that. Just type in The Rabbitry on Facebook and like and share it, follow it. Links to all of our former episodes of, of this Best in Show podcast dedicated to the show Rabbit and KB industry are on there. And again, this is the only podcast dedicated to the show Rabbit and KB industry. And we we hope that it stays that way, by the way. Um, we've got interviews from not only our contemporary 
exhibitors and judges, but icons in the industry and including those from around the world. And we have so much more in store for you. So like and share the rabbitry on Facebook. And it doesn't matter where you're listening to this podcast, whether it's Apple, Spotify, Google, Audible, it doesn't matter. We are on it, Best in Show Podcast. Do a simple search in those podcast uh, search engines for the Best in Show Podcast and you'll find us. And we love your comments. We really appreciate your five stars, your shares, your follows, your... If you subscribe to our podcast, it means the world to us. So, and it's free, by the way. This is all educational and a glimpse into our industry in a very intimate way that's at zero dollars. So like and and share and follow us and and subscribe to us wherever it is uh, that you listen to us. And again, links to all of our uh, current and past episodes are on The Rabbitry on Facebook. So I'm going to read a a listener comment that comes to us from Christy Grinold. She writes, I fell a bit behind in listening to the episodes, but I recently finished this one up with Eric Stewart and I really enjoyed it. I also love the one with Phil Gould. He is so ambitious. He's also incredibly inspiring. I love when he said, ask yourself what you want out of it. Do you want to make friendships? Do you want to sit around the table and drink tea? Or do you want to win the shows? Because there is a difference. Christy goes on to say, I'm a pretty big fangirl of the Best in Show podcast. So naturally throughout the episodes, I kept wondering if it would come up and when he visited actually my rabbitry on one of his visits to the States, Phil Gould, that is, lo and behold, the topic did come up and I was flattered that he mentioned his visit to my own rabbitry. So thanks, Christy, for your comment. And as a as a, a nod to all of our listeners, if you have comments, please drop them, whether it's on Facebook or on one of the platforms that you listen to the podcast. We love hearing them and we will certainly um, air them on future episodes. All right, Bryony, I think you've got some podcast comments also to share, right? I do. The first one came to us via the um, podcast app. I think it was Apple. It was from the Lady Elizabeth, who says, Lovely podcast. Fills a huge need in the industry. Love the wide range of topics. Almost deducted a star because you said that bourbon is made in Kentucky and Tennessee. That is absolute blasphemy to this Kentucky girl. It can only be called bourbon if made in the state of Kentucky. Better have that down before you get here. We take our bourbon very seriously. We do (laughs) sincerely apologize. Um, I am actually rather a fan of Jack Daniels, and I remembered right away that it does say on that bottle, Tennessee whiskey. Yes, it does. (laughs) We we will not make that mistake again. (laughs) So sorry about that. And, and, you know, Brandy, you've got more experience on this than I do. If anyone that knows me, it's going to be a cab or a Malbec. So (laughs) that's about where my, where my, expertise on this ends. Yeah, you know, there's there's wine nights. I, I have a feeling convention may be a, a bit of a Jack and Coke weekend. Um, uh, the second comment we got was on Facebook. This was from Jody White, and it was in response to the Feel Gold episode post. She says, I just started listening to the podcast and I am hooked. This one and the most recent one with Eric Stewart are by far my favorites. The passion and dedication to this hobby has given me a renewed spark to push even harder, working to improve my breed and to be a more active member in the ARBA world. And I think that's some of the highest praise we can get. Um, That was our whole purpose in beginning this podcast was to hopefully share some of these stories and inspire people uh, and help them fall, you know, even more in love with this hobby that we love so much. So thank you, Jody. We appreciate that. You nailed it. And Jody too. I mean, um, so many of our guests talk about those lunchtime hours that, that used to be where 
instead of the triple shows that keep us busy through lunchtime, afforded us the time to sit down with breeders and friends and and talk about rabbits. And uh, we hope that this podcast maybe fills some of that gap that we don't have quite have anymore in our busy society of you know rabbit and, and cavey showing. So we're going to dedicate episode 29 to 1984, and that was the year that our special guest this episode, Chris Semney, joined the ARBA. And I've got some world events to uh, get into 1984 to share with everyone. And then, Brian, of course, you've got some ARBA happenings that happened in 1984. So in 1984, the year that Chris Semney joined the ARBA, on February 3rd, uh, Dr. Bustle and the research team at Harbor UCLA Medical Center announced the history's first embryonic transfer from one woman to another, resulting in a live birth. In April of 1984, the United States researchers announced their discovery of the AIDS virus. In May of 84, the Soviet Union announced that it would boycott the 1984 Summer Olympics that would uh, appear or happen in Los Angeles later that summer in August of 84. June of 84, Bruce Springsteen releases his seventh album, Born in the USA, and the CD was on album, and it was actually the first CD ever manufactured in the United States. In September of 1984, on September 10th, actually, Jeopardy! began its syndicated version with host, the late Alex Trebek. October 20th of 1984, the Monterey Bay Aquarium is open to the public after seven years of development and construction. And uh, our special guest today, Chris Zemney, she doesn't live very far from the Monterey Bay Aquarium. So it's actually a a big event or a big kind of go-to spot when you go to some of her shows like the Triple Crown every summer. So the Monterey Bay Aquarium opened in October of 84. Also in 1984, uh, later in October, the Terminator, which we all know and love, uh, was first released. And lastly, and this is a big one for us rabbit people, (laughs) ready? In 1984, the Chrysler Corporation introduced the first vehicle to be officially labeled as the minivan and they were branded as chrysler town and country dodge caravan and of course the plymouth voyager which all serve today as vehicles for us to get to our rabbit shows including this convention all right Bryony, what do you've got for us on the airbnb side oh the minivan yes roll into any rabbit show parking lot and you will see a smattering of minivans suvs and then some compact cars with very artful packers you know you're a rabbit breeder when you uh show up at the at the dealership and you say um, how many carriers can I fit in this? <laughs> <laughs> I've taken carriers to the dealership. Um, oh my I've, God. I've taken a tape measure and, and that was, I mean, a big selling point. I, I drive an SUV. <laughs> I, my last few vehicles have been, you know, smaller SUVs, but yeah, I take the tape measure. It's got to fit my carriers. Um, so I pulled out, we were actually loaned, um, quite a treasure trove of rabbit history. And given the year 1984, I chose the 1981 through 1985 standard of perfection, which would have been the first standard that Chris would have owned as a new ARBA member. And some interesting things in this one, this standard was dedicated to Oren Reynolds, former president, currently member of the ARBA standards committee and editor of domestic rabbits at the time. And Wayne Willman, former president, currently ARBA judge and longtime member of the standards committee. Both of those men are ARBA hall of famers. Um, The members of the Standards Committee in 1980, when this was published, the chair was Al Meyer. Al was actually not a judge. He was a longtime chair of the Standards Committee, but he was not a judge. The rest of the committee included Glenn Carr, James Hyde, Marvin Cummings, Don Lovejoy, Oren Reynolds, J.C. Lowett, and Wayne Willman. Um, Of course, we know Glenn. Uh, Marvin Cummings was still very active in rabbit shows in Florida until 
just a few years ago. He not too long ago passed away. Um, so there, there is, you know, some continuity and some of these people, you know, have been around for quite a long time and, and have witnessed a lot of the changes in this industry and standard of which are kind of vast. You know, I kind of just flipped through this. Um, there are a handful of color photos in the standard to show um, a select few breeds and varieties. There's a photo of a fawn Flemish giant, of a red New Zealand, of champagne, a tortoise English lop, a blue tan, a Siamese sable dwarf, a black silver marten, and a castor rex. Those were the eight rabbits that were chosen. Um, apparently, those were the ones that it was felt, you know, important enough to picture those. This says these pictures represent what is felt to be typical color for the breed and variety. So that was an aid to judging. There are a couple articles in here, actually, which surprised me because that's not how our standard is laid out now. There was an article about commercial normal fur from Wally Zahn, who was half of a um, showroom pair at Bagby and Zahn, ARBA convention best in show winners. And there was an article about judging Rex fur by Dennis Holcomb that preceded the condition and fur standards. So looking through this, um, there was a breed in here that some of us have maybe heard of, but by the time you and I joined the ARBA, um, had already dropped out of the standard. It's a breed called the Blue Vienna. That actually came up in a conversation today that I had with Frank Nutar from Nova Scotia, who is presenting the Blue Hollisers. Those are a breed imported from Europe. And we talked a little bit about that. And he mentioned that the that breed has kind of taken on popularity in several countries in Europe, and especially among people who were longtime older Blue Vienna breeders who are looking for a similar but smaller rabbit. Very much like what happens here. You see people who've raised, you know, Rex or Satins for many years, eventually at some point transitioning to many Rex, many Satins, people who've raised New Zealand's, you know, transition to Florida White sometime. Um, so that was really interesting. So I pulled the standard out. I, get, I said, well, I, I have to see, you know, how similar those are. Um, the Blue Vienna was a larger rabbit. The weight for senior bucks was eight to ten and a half pounds. For senior does was nine to eleven and a half pounds. It was a sixth class breed at the time. The type was described as slightly over medium length, avoiding any tendency toward being close coupled. Good width of body carried from shoulders through hindquarters. Good depth over entire length with well-filled loin and hindquarters. There should be no tendency toward mandolin type so as to detract from the shape desired. Um, the fur I thought was kind of unique. And actually very similar to the, to the discussion we had about the Blue Hollister fur today. It says, outer coat to be soft and dense with good length and to stand near a 90 degree angle from body. Length of coat approximately one and a quarter inches. Undercoat to be soft and dense. About one half the total length of the coat. Special emphasis to be placed on density and evenness of undercoat. The Blue Hollister coat and the guard hair is a lot short, shorter, but it has a lot of density to it. It's different really from a lot of the fur that we have on our American breeds. Um, it's not a standing coat, but it's kind of a slow rollback coat. And it's because of all that density. It's still not a coarse textured coat. Um, it's still got a finer diameter of hair. And like I said, the Hollister's got a much shorter guard hair. It's just a little bit longer than the undercoat. But that extreme density makes it, you know, kind of unique. Um, the color on the Blue Viennas was... Surface color is to be bright, clear, lustrous, dark blue, extending evenly from nose to tail. The belly and underside of tail are to match surface color, but are understandably lacking in luster. 
Undercolor to carry as deeply towards skin as possible and blue in color, lighter in color near skin, eyes to be blue-gray in color matching body color, which is, again, very similar to the color we talked about with those blue holisters. That depth of color, that evenness of color, and the notation even that the belly and the underside of the tail, because of kind of the lack of distribution of guard hairs that we tend to see there, are going to be lacking the luster of the fur over the back. So I thought that was very interesting. Um, we are actually preparing in just a couple of days to do the first presentation with the Blue Hollisters via Zoom. And Chris will be joining us for that. And so that's an interesting little bit of history there. Well, and, and Vienna's in history have a mark. If you read Bob Whitman's book, uh, The History of Domestic Rabbits, Vienna is quoted over and over in many breed developments across the world and their influence. They're, they're not a new breed. They're certainly one we don't have in the U.S. anymore, but they still hold um, quite a quite an impact on the history of and development of breeds. And they're a popular breed in Europe. My, my very good friend, Jeremy in, in France, who uh, was kind enough to sell us most of his dwarf papillons in the project that we started here to get that breed recognized. He's given up on dwarf papillons, and he's now in, entirely raising uh, Viennas. And actually, he raises them in Interesting. So yeah, it, it's fun to see, you know, our, our connection with the European show industry is nothing new at all. Um, in fact, that's where our, you know, show rabbits came from originally was Europe. Um, but yeah, that's very interesting. I also, because we had Chris, I could not help but go look at the Holland Lop standard. And in this standard, there were not color photos of every breed. There were black and white photos at the beginning of the breed standard, as we still see in modern standards. The Hollenlop in this photo, um, they, they've improved a lot. <laughs> the, the rabbit you see here, I think, would, would not impress most any judge or, <laughs> or breeder now. Um, the point distribution has changed quite a bit. Um, and that's what I found most interesting in the... 2021 standard general type has 84 points that's broken down for 24 points for the head 10 for the ears eight for the crown 32 for the body and 10 for bone feet and legs in the 1981 standard general type carried 60 points with 25 on the body that's not changed as much the head carried 10 that's you know more than doubled now it carries 24 points now the ears carried 20 points, but that did include the crown in the ear description. So now the ears and crown in combination carry 18 points. Now fur carries 7 points. In 1981, it carried 15 points. Color wow. and markings now carry 4 points. In 1981, they also carried 15 points. Oh, my God. Yeah, and there were 10 points on condition in that standard opposed to the five we have now. You might wonder what colors we're talking about, especially since color had so many points on it. I looked at this standard. The first one I owned was 1991, and there was a color guide in the beginning of the standard. And for breeds like Lops that tended to have, you know, a large number of colors, they showed a solid and broken. That was what you would refer to for those. The, the groups they were accepted in were listed at the front of the standard, like varieties were for, you know, Dutch or English spots or whatever. And then you would refer back to that general color guide in the front. There was no such color guide in the 1981 standard. The color and markings simply said, Solid colors include self, shaded, and agouti. In self, the color should be as uniform as possible over the entire body. 
the agouti should have a light belly color and light eye circles. Broken colors include any color in combination with white. Regular pattern markings are preferred with color around nose and eyes with colored ears. Body colors should be evenly distributed in patched or blanket markings. Front feet should be white. Rear feet may be white colored or partially colored. Eye color to complement body color. All that was worth 15 points. Uh, And there was no real standard for colors. I guess anything that kind of fit shelf self-shaded or goody was accepted. And it was kind of up to the judge to determine the quality of that color. So things have certainly changed a lot. Um, Color doesn't carry nearly as many points now in Holland Lops or any other lot breed. Looking across the lot breeds, the point distribution was very similar with kind of the same statement. Um, English Lops were basically accepted in any color under the sun. Um, French had a statement similar to that in the Holland Standard. Interestingly enough, the Mini Lop Working Standard was printed in this standard, which came out in 1980, was dated 81 to 85, with the notation that they'd passed two showings and, you know, should they pass their third, this would be their standard. So it was already printed in the book. So that's a lot more optimistic, I think, than we are now. Um, (laughs) But anyway, you know, very interesting reading and really shows kind of how far we've come and how much work has been put into defining and, you know, writing standards for all of these colors that, you know, maybe aren't accepted in many breeds, but are popular in lops or, you know, at least recognized in lops and angoras and some of the breeds that that recognize a lot of colors and kind of just show in those two classifications. So lots of change, lots of progress, but that's what the hobby is about. It's such a great point. You know, we often think about the the amount of work that breeders put towards those new varieties and and breeds that come through with their color descriptions. But a lot of work has to go on the ARBA side, your committee, for example, the standards committee, more than any one other, because when new varieties and, and, and breeds come about, they have to somewhat adhere to now some consistency. And that's a challenge for, for your committee, is it not? Yeah, it is. Um, you know, when we look at, you know, standards that come for new varieties, we're not looking for something that's wildly different from what people considered to be kind of normal in that variety. You know, of course, different fur structures kind of do influence that sometimes, you know, your goody standard for a normal fur breed is going to be different than your goody standard for a Rex fur breed. Um, but we're looking for as much consistency as possible because, you know, the standard has expanded a lot. There are more breeds, there are more varieties and, you know, we don't necessarily need, 17 different descriptions of black color. You know, some of these <laughs> things should be simple and consistent as much as possible, unless there's a good reason for it not to be. Well, and anyone studying for a judge license will appreciate that. Yes, yes, we try. We are really excited this week to welcome a legend in the ARBA industry, none other than Chris Zemney. Chris has been a member of the ARBA for nearly 40 years and an ARBA licensed judge for more than 20 years. She's traveled extensively around the United States and been invited to judge at countless ARBA conventions, breed national shows, and even in Asia. Notably, she's traveled to three Asian countries on multiple occasions to judge at some of the very first ARBA-sanctioned shows. She's been instrumental behind the scenes in organizing multiple all-breed and specialty shows, haul-up nationals, and ARBA conventions. In 2010, Chris earned an ARBA Distinguished Service Award, and in 2016, she was awarded an ARBA Lifetime Judge License. Welcome, Chris Zemney, to the podcast. Hi, Alan. 
How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm, I'm, I'm fabulous because I get to, to talk to you tonight and do a podcast interview, which I've been, it's been on my bucket list since Brian and I started this podcast earlier this year. Well, I'm looking forward to it. We'll have fun. So where are you right now? Are you at home? I'm at home at my desk. Um, I have Alicia Call here with me. She comes and helps sometimes. And uh, we're just sitting here doing a podcast. I love it. Surrounded by rabbit family, whether you're uh, yeah. in person or, or over the internet. Exactly. Well, we really appreciate you taking time out tonight to talk with us. Um, this episode is going to be aired while so many people are hitting the, the freeways and airports to the ARBA convention this year in Louisville, Kentucky. So as a popular face at conventions for many, many years, your voice is going to be uh, very, very um, welcomed across uh, many of our listeners around the country as they, as they tune in on their travels. So let's start from the beginning. Um, it's, you've been in Rabbits a long time. How did you get your first start in Rabbits and when did you join the ARBA? You know, it, that's a good question. It was a long time ago, Alan. I, I, we, Alicia and I were actually talking about this when we were up in the barn playing, and it's been about 40 years. What, what happened was we decided to move to the country, so we decided to get animals, so we got two rabbits, two French lops. And, um, you know, we, did, we didn't know anything. And we named the doe Ralph, and we named the buck Fuzzy and thought the buck was the girl. We had no idea what we were doing. <laughs> and... Um, we had babies and that was really fun. And then we decided to try a rabbit show. So we went to a rabbit show and, you know, my daughter was the one that was showing them. She was really into it, Allison. And uh, she won best of breed. And it was like, oh my God, is this a big deal or isn't it? And all the open breeders, because she was a kid showing an open, were kind of pissed. <laughs> so <laughs> it was interesting. So we went to another show and we went to another show and we were kind of hooked. Well, then Megan wanted rabbits. Megan's, um, two and three quarter years younger than Allison and Allison was pretty young. We decided to get her dwarf. She wanted dwarf. So we bought some dwarfs for her and the kids were showing and it was a family adventure and it was a lot of fun. Um, we did belong to the ARBA during this time because that's what you do. You join the organizations that you're involved in. And we belong to the specialty clubs as well. Um, what happened after that was I didn't want to be that parent that's overly zealous into their kids' rabbits. You know, you know those parents, Alan. You've seen them. All judges have seen oh, them. Oh, yeah. So I just said, well, I'm going to get my own breed. You know, you, you have the French Lops and you have the Dwarfs. I'm going to get little French Lops. So I contacted Hans Albrecht, who was an all-time Holland breeder, and he had Holland Lops that looked like little mini French Lops. And we bought some Holland Lops from him. And what the first one was named Sonia. And I remember she, we got a buck to go with her and bred her. And we brought her in. You're just going to die. I was one of those newbies. We brought her into our master bathroom with her nest box and wanted her to have her babies in there. And she ate the phone cord. She found a phone cord. She got <laughs> out, ate the phone cord like they do. And she did have babies. I, I don't remember much more than that. But it was a beginning. And the thing was, to do rabbits and do them well, you have to be able to see spatial relationships. And I happen to be really good at that. So... We were good. I mean, we had really beautiful French lops and really beautiful dwarfs, and we had Holland lops that looked like mini French lops, which were wrong. I mean, they were totally wrong. That's not what they were supposed to look like, but that's what we had. And I met Shannon Byram shortly after that over uh, dwarf photos. Megan decided to get a dwarf photo because it looked like dwarfs, right? And we named him TT. He was very cute. And Shannon had this gorgeous doe, and we decided to breed our buck and our to their doe and have babies. And so we met her and she was all excited about going to this ARBA convention in Florida, which was my first convention. And um, I went and I brought my famous Holland Lops, right? 
that looked like French locks. And uh, Jeff Harden judged. I remember that. And there were a lot of rabbits there and a lot of people. And I remember he had two cuts. You, you made the first cut and then you would take those off and then the good ones would stay to the end. And I was always at the top of the ones that were the bad group, which was really frustrating. I, I don't take losing easily. So I vowed that I was going to have to get different rabbits and fix them because they didn't look right. Because the ones that were there that were beautiful looked like Holland as we know them today, you know, with the higher headsets and the big heads, the heavy bone. You know, mine looked like little French lops that were refined and the heads were down on the table and they were cute, but they were wrong. So um, I ended up purchasing over a period of a couple of years, seven or eight rabbits from Jeff Harden for $300 a piece back then. And this was, you know, like, I don't know, 38, 37 years ago. It was a long time ago. And it's when he was importing rabbits. They were imports. And I paid $300 a piece for him, which would be probably $600 a piece in today's you know, inflated terms, but, um, that's where my start came from. And, um, I don't know that it was the year after Florida or if it was two years after that, but I won best opposite breed at a convention. And that was just life changing. It was like, man, I am so hooked on this. I can make pretty rabbits and do well. And it was pretty cool. Actually, that was in 1987 at the Portland convention and Orlando was in 84. So it was three years later. Um, I was hooked. I mean, I was just totally hooked. And that was the beginning. And I got rid of all the little French lop looking ones and just had Holland Lops that looked correct and loved them and have loved them ever since. So that's how I got my start. I'm, it's kind of a long story. Sorry for the link. No, it's, it's a great start. And it's, it's really not unlike a lot of ours. I think a lot of us had tragic beginnings. I think my very first rabbit that I showed was also disqualified. She was like a five pound fuzzy lop. And the judge, yeah. Alan Platt said, anybody have the hotline for Jenny Craig around here? Because this fuzzy oh, lop God. needs it. So we, we all had fails. I, I don't know what, what we stuck around for, but uh, maybe it was that similar drive. Like, well, you know, you can do better. So you're going to try. Uh, yeah. You're, you're yeah. Darnest. So you talked about Hans Albrecht and, uh, and Shannon Byram. Um, let's talk about your mentors and those close friends and those relationships that you had in the beginning, because, um, and, and did people also involve or, you know, inspire you to, to become involved in this and, and who were they? You know, um, well, my kids mostly, because it became a family thing. Really every weekend we'd get up at, you know, early o'clock in the morning, 4am, I don't know, whatever, and go to rabbit shows. And it was fun. It was a really fun, healthy and very family oriented adventure. We, we loved it. I mean, all four of us, my husband, and I, and the two girls would take off in the minivan and go to rabbit shows. Um, mentor wise, Shannon actually was one of the first ARBA women judges. And, um, she kind of inspired me to get my license. As far as mentors at that time, Scott Williamson had moved out to California from Illinois. And I think it was Illinois, but anyway, he was a huge inspiration. And I remember when I first met him, I was in awe. It was like, Oh my God, this is a famous rabbit judge. Oh my God. I almost, I almost couldn't talk to him. I was so like, Oh, look at him. He's so famous. But, um, he was a huge inspiration. Um, like I said, Shannon, um, trying to think who else really, Alan Barr actually was there too at the beginning. What happened there. And that was further on down the line. Um, after I had started the judging training and the process, um, we would travel down to San Diego and Alan, Alan helped a lot. And I remember, after I got my license, this is a funny story. Um, he asked me to judge at his house for some special show. There was a Dutch specialty and a Florida white specialty. And, you know, I had had my license for like a couple of months and I went down there and I remember, you know, 
going to bed thinking, oh, God, do I sleep with my standard and hope it does osmosis into my brain? I don't know. A little worried. I mean, I hadn't really handled Florida whites much. There weren't very many in Northern California. What was I going to do? Dutch, I was pretty comfortable with. That was not a problem because God had trained me well. And we did the Dutch specialty. And, and then I have this Florida white specialty. And it's like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? It's Alan Barr's backyard. He had really nice ones. There were beautiful ones there. And I, I went through and I did it. You know, you always do as best you can, as best I can. And I loved the rabbit that won. And when it was all said and done and everyone went, went home, Alan comes up to me with this very somber face. Why did you pick that rabbit? And I'm going, oh, crap, I blew it. So I go, well, let's go look in the barn. So we get it out. And he poses it up. And it looked like crap. I went, oh, my God. Are you sure this is the one I picked? And he goes, yeah, it's right here, number. So I said, well, wait a minute. I pose left-handed. Let me pose it my way. So I pose it left-handed. And it looked like a totally different rabbit. And Alan goes, oh, my God, it looks like a totally different rabbit. It was my first lesson that rabbits aren't always symmetrical. Um, one side could definitely look better than the other because that rabbit definitely looked good from the left side but not from the right side. But um, – Anyway, he, he was a mentor, too, of sorts. And we would, Deb Sandoval and I would travel down there, and we would stay up at night talking about, you know, hindquarters on rabbits, crowns on rabbits, bone on rabbits. Um, Scott, Scott, my rabbits, I was not a big crown breeder. I lost the crowns early on. And he would always say, Chris, there's 95 points on crown. You know, don't forget that. And, you know, he's influenced me. Um Bob Hirschbach, this is an interesting story. Bob Hirschbach, who no one has probably heard of anymore because he's been dead for a long time. He lived about three miles from me. And before I became a judge, I would go over to his house and listen to his stories. And he's a really, I, Alan, I don't know if you knew him. Did you know him at all? No, he was before my time. I know, you're young. Um, I'm old, you know, there you go. But I would go over there and he had this huge barn that was a rabbit colony. He had all these mini lops that he was colony breeding on the ground. They just lived in the dirt and he had little rabbit houses where they go in the houses and burrow down. It was crazy. And he taught me a lot about breeding and genetics. He had mini lops mostly and then French lops. And um, he had these orange or red French lops and he pulled out a bunch of them and he goes, I've been working on modifier genes. And he pulled out French lops that went from a very, very, very pale, pale orange all the way in a color scope, all the way to a deep red. And it was amazing. It was amazing. I was so impressed. Um, he showed me blue Viennas, which had some of the most amazing stand-up coats that I've ever seen and the richest blue color I've ever seen. He taught me a lot about different braids. He had, he thought he made Holland Lops, but the Holland Lops he made were, were like my first ones. They didn't look right. So we used to argue about that. But And he would always, you know, he was an old guy, and I'm probably there now because I'm an old person too. And He'd always tell the same stories over and over again. And he would just listen <laughs> and nod and, you know, smile. And it was all okay. We well, took him once. Funny story. We took him once. Shannon and I decided to go up to one of the first Red Bluff shows. And they used to do this turkey show where they had served a full turkey meal up there. Shannon Brown and Bruce Brown did the show. And so we drove Bob up there. And his wife packed us these sandwiches. Oh, my God. They were the grossest sandwiches in the world. And <laughs> Shannon was driving. No, yeah, Shannon was driving. Bob was in the front seat, and I was in the back. And I kind of hid mine in a napkin and quickly threw it away at the, the gas station. And afterwards, Shannon goes, "Did what you do with the sandwich? I go, well, I threw it away. She goes, I couldn't. He was in the front seat with me. I had to eat <laughs> the damn thing. It was like, oh, my God. Oh, but, my gosh. Um, they met. You know, his wife met well, and he met well. Ethel was really sweet, too. Really nice couple. 
you know, I'd say he impacted me a lot too, just because he taught me. I'd go over there every Saturday. He taught me every Saturday for a couple hours on rabbits. I mean, type and fur and color. And it was, it was pretty amazing. Well, and, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but Bob Hirschbach was the developer behind the mini lot breed, yes, which yes. before you got into Holland's was the smallest yes. lot breed recognized exactly. in the ARBA. So yep. what was that like to have a breed developer there nearly in your backyard? He was in Watsonville, correct? You no, know, it was Watsonville. I was clueless. I didn't know. He was just a guy that raised rabbits up the road from me, you know? It, it was just, it, there wasn't that element of hero worship because I didn't know Bob that way. He had a friend named Tiny Tardy, which was this little teeny lady that had French slops. And we sort of became friends with her because she's the one that gave, you're going to love the story. She gave French slops to my friend, the Rosas, who gave us the babies, Fuzzy and Ralph, that we started with. So they basically were Bob Hirschbach French slops from way back. But so we all kind of were friends and it was fun. It was just a fun time. I mean, Bob was a judge. So you gave him the respect of a judge, but I had no idea that, you know, he had started and really done a lot with founding mini lops. I, no idea whatsoever. I just knew that when he made those Holland lops, they were not good. <laughs> <laughs> well, you touched on some of those earlier shows and I, I love to hear those old stories about what shows were like in the eighties and the early nineties. And uh, they often come to me as, as seeming maybe untamed, uh, do you have some stories from those wild frontier days of, of showing you shows? Do. What was it like to be in a, was, a showroom? Honestly, Alan, I wish we would go back. It was, you had one show. There was one show a day. That's it. No two shows, no three shows, no running around. And we had this French lop club called the NorCal, the NorCal French lop club, NorCal lop club. And you'd have a show and it was usually at the Pleasanton fairgrounds in this little patio area. And you allocated two hours for lunch. And everybody bought stuff for a potluck. Everybody helped everybody. And this is what we've lost. We've lost the communication of helping people and teaching people at shows. There's no time anymore. But we had a two-hour lunch. And, you know, if you needed bone and you know, someone else had bone on their rabbits, they would breed their buck to your dough or breed their dough to their buck or whatever. I and mean, we all bred each other's rabbits. Everybody shared. Everybody helped each other. It was just an interesting time because it was, there was a lot of camaraderie and you went not so much to win. You went for the camaraderie. So it was an interesting time to show rabbits. Unlike now, I think we go and everybody's so focused on winning and getting legs and there's all these shows and Hey, I put on shows. I put on triple shows. I mean, you need to do it financially here because the venues are so darn expensive, but it would be fun to go back to the old days and, and do that. And I try to do that with the triple crown show every year, just make it more low key. It's local here just Hollands. And, you know, we try to visit a lot. There's not as many rabbits per judge. You know, when you have 250 rabbits a judge, that's a lot. You know, back to the old days, the Dwarf Club, the California Netherlands Dwarf Club would have 300 plus dwarfs at a show. And it was crazy. You had a couple of judges doing dwarfs. I mean, that was a huge club and it was thriving. And that was pretty interesting. I mean, it was really interesting too. But that was the old days. And it's different now. I mean, it's evolved over the ages. Well, you mentioned Florida as your first convention. Was that Tampa or Orlando? It was Orlando. It was back in 84. So what was it like uh, in 1984 walking into your first convention? I mean, obviously you're going to have your, your, your novice kind of take on it, but what did a convention Let's, back in 84 look like compared to today? It, it, it was big. I'll talk about my second convention, which was the Houston one the following year. That was interesting because there was a fist fight in the Holland Lop judging area. I was like, oh my God, what the heck is going on here? There were some meager beginnings with Holland Lobs. There's a lot of fighting. 
But um, I think it, it, you know, I was so new. You're a little bit oblivious to what's going on. You know, as you get more and more into it, you understand, you know, I didn't even think about a standards committee or meetings or judges conferences or any of that stuff. I just went and we did the show and we kind of hung out and we tried to talk to everybody and look at rabbits. I remember looking at one of Elizabeth Forstinger's and saying, is this one for sale? And she goes, oh, you have a really good eye. Who are you? And hmm. I was like, huh, what do you mean? Who am I? I'm nobody. Don't worry about me. But um, so it was basically hanging out in the rows and walking around and visiting you know, now I, I enjoy the same type of thing. I mean, one year, and I can't remember the year. What year did Fibber win Best in Show with that Florida? Do you remember that? That was in 1999 in Louisville. Yeah, that was, I was actually wandering around and someone said, hey, come, let's, this is Fibber. Come meet Fibber. Let's look at this Florida white. And oh my God, that rabbit gave me goosebumps. That was an amazing rabbit. I mean, to this day, I think about that rabbit. But the the fun part of conventions has been the wandering around, looking at either your breed and talking to people in your breed or other breeds. And at the beginning, we had three breeds, so I had a lot of walking around to do. We had tried to hit it all, you know. Um, for you know, podcast guests and Airbnb members that are listening in, what would you recommend to those that whether it's their first convention or maybe it's their fiftieth convention? If you could wish upon anyone something to do at the convention, what would it be? Hang out in your breed and talk to everybody. Everybody wants to show off their rabbits. Everyone wants to teach you what they know about rabbits. Trust me, they do. They want to brag about their rabbit. Look at my rabbit. Look at the hindquarters on this rabbit or look at the fur on this rabbit or look at the whatever on this rabbit. The more people you talk to and the more rabbits you touch, the more you're going to learn. And it's a chance for you to do this. We did this at the shows way back at the beginning. Remember I told you about that? The convention is a chance for you to get out there and get your hands on different rabbits because they are different. Not all of them that come from different parts of the area are the same, whether it be a Holland or a dwarf or, you know, a Britannia petite. There are breed variety and there's breed variations. Sorry. And you just have to get out there and see what's out there. It's, it's really fun. I mean, the other thing that's fun at conventions is to go out to dinner and, and, you know, party with your friends, but <laughs> you know, what, been... what else to do? I mean, I, I RabbitCon, I've always enjoyed. I mean, I've always, I've been one of your presenters every year. I love RabbitCon. I just think there's so much learning that goes on there on various topics. Um, well, you've been instrumental since the beginning. We launched RabbitCon in 2009, and we've hit almost every convention since. And you have been a continued voice, not only in one subject, but sometimes three or four. And there is not a presenter in RabbitCon history that can pack a room with attendees like you. It's usually standing room only, especially when you give your, uh, is it eeny, meeny, miny, mode? Do I pick the buck or the dough? I remember that one back in 09, and you've done yeah, it several I, times since. I told since. everyone that walked in I wasn't handing out hammers at that for culling. It was pretty funny. <laughs> they just all laughed. And you do a, you do a bang-up job. And we're really excited this year. You're, we're going to talk about convention, and you're not going to be there, unfortunately. We're going to miss you. But you are going to be part of convention because uh, we'll talk about standards committee stuff later on. But you will be presenting at RabbitCon in, in two courses yes. this year uh, yes. through Zoom. So those guests that get to come to RabbitCon, we still get our Chris Emney fix and some of the best uh, educational symposiums because you will be there, just, just in a little different fashion. Yeah. And, you know, Alan, I so appreciate you asking me to do that, too, because it was really hard not to go this year. I mean, I've gone to every convention since that 1984 convention, other than one that was canceled last year. And then one other one when Matt's father died and I had to stay here for that. Next way to get everything settled and taken care of. But so missing a convention is a huge deal for me. So having you invite me to do that helps me be a part of it. And I really do appreciate that. 
Well, honestly, we couldn't do it without you. You know, we don't want to you know give away too much, but what are the topics you're going to be speaking on this year at RabbitCon? And um, you want to give us a little tidbit on, on where you're going with some of the, the some of the information you're going to? No. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay. All right, everybody. Well, no, one You've got to come to RabbitCon. One of them is on, um, I don't know what the titles are. You know the titles, but not everybody. One's about what do you keep? When do you get rid of rabbits? How do you do it? Do you keep bring in new ones or do you keep old ones? What do you do? Yeah, outcrosses versus, outcrosses uh, versus inbred or outcrosses yeah. versus buying. Um, that's been pretty interesting. It's always fun to do this because I always learn from them. And the other one is on herd bucks. And uh, that's, I like that presentation a lot. I haven't finished the second one, but that one's close. And uh, it's going to be good. It's going to be I good. I can't wait. They're both subjects we've never touched on before in RabbitCon. And I've been wanting to do one on, you know, herd buck maintenance and in these smaller breeds like Hollands and Dwarfs, for example, you know, those old bucks, they, they don't, they're not as, as vigorous as they, as they no. were when they were younger. And sometimes they're not vigorous ever. So it's, uh, we can't wait to hear your, your take on it. I'm going to take some notes while I'm in that class too, because I've got some old bucks that I still want to get babies out of it. They just, they'd rather eat their pellets and then have, you know, potato chips and watch TV. I, I do know how to fix that. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. We'll have fun. All right. So let's go back to the earlier days. Um, what inspired you to become an ARBA judge? When was it? And what was it like for you? And maybe how was it different than than others that had previously earned judge licenses uh, in the ARBA? Well, there weren't a lot of women at the beginning. It was all men. It was a lot of old men. Um, Shannon became a judge and it was it was really hard for her. She was younger than I was by about 20 years. And I remember she, she would get sick at the end of a show, sick to her stomach because it was so stressful. And I saw, I could do this. I can, I can handle this. And, uh, it was like the next step, you know, it's always like the next step. So, um, I applied to get my judge's license, studied like heck, worked with some people and, and did it. But it's interesting because women were really harassed at, at the beginning of my career. Um, I've had, since then I've had judges that a woman say to me, thank you for paving the way because women weren't really accepted. It was a guy's thing. You know, it was old man's thing really. And, uh, I mean, I've had old men grab my ass, you know, which I didn't appreciate. Um, I, I, they say horrible things. I had one judge chew me out at the table over placement of, I can't even remember what breed it was, some commercial breed, maybe Florida whites. And they had a special license and I just looked them square in the eye and said, just wait till you get your all breed license and you get Holland Lobs. And the whole table laughed because this guy had been known to harass everybody. But, um, you know, it just took, I'm a strong person. It just took being a strong person and doing it. And the more women that got in, the more they were accepted. Now there's a lot of women judges, you know, there's no real distinction. There's, I, it might be 50, 50. I don't even know. I would imagine it was, if not, maybe more women. I mean, it's, it's yeah. a, it's a very uh, female dominated industry and you were yeah. definitely on the forefront of that. Yeah. But it was interesting. I mean, it was, you know, it, I, I like challenges. So you give me a challenge. I'll usually rise to it. And you got it was it. a challenge. That's for sure. Do you have any um, vivid memories from all, I mean, you've judged all over the country and really all over the world. Do you have some, some judging stories that, that, that kind of stay with you and that you, that you reminisce on either good or bad that maybe you want to share? <laughs> uh, I, I remember we, we were at a show once. And Caleb was there and Scott Williams was there and we were sharing judging stories. And I've never laughed so hard in my life over bad judging stories, places we've stayed. I mean, it, way back when it was different than it is now. And you just, you'd go and you wouldn't know where you were going. I, mean, I was, I went to a show once and 
with some other judges and the people that brought us in didn't win. So they just left us there. No dinner. They took us back to the hotel. There's no place to eat nearby. We all just went to bed and then got up and ate at the airport the next morning. But it's like, oh my God, how do you treat people like this? <laughs> but you don't, you don't see that anymore. I mean, it's, it's more organized now. I think it's better organized now, but there are, you know, it's all kinds of funny stories. Be- best stories. Um, Japan was amazing. Sam had me out to judge Japan quite a while ago. And Afterwards, arranged a side trip for me and my daughter that was unreal. Um, we went to Kyoto and all over the place. It was really, really fun. And Indonesia, same thing. I mean, we always went to interesting places. We went to Bali. You know, we all over saw things we would never see otherwise. And the same with Malaysia. You just, you know, I made great friends from all over the world. I mean, Sally and I from Malaysia became best friends. And, you know, I, we still talk, you know, really special. Yeah, well, you and I did that trip together. We judged the first yeah. uh, show in Indonesia together, and then remember we were there for I don't know two weeks because we we would we kind of island hop. We went from Malaysia to Indonesia, yep. and I, I feel like we may have ended back up in Malaysia. Or maybe it was because we went to Bali after judging the the yes. uh, show there in Jakarta. Um, but it was a, that was a that was one of my most fun judging experiences, and I got to share that with you. We just yeah. we got to meet all these people again. It was it was almost like being new in rabbits. Don't you remember that? Yeah. It was, and it was so fun to see it through their eyes because they were so hungry to learn. You know, we did seminars too, and they just wanted so badly to learn how to do it right. And there is no right way. There's lots of right ways, right? And it was just, it, it was fun. It was really fun. I, I remember that trip we did. I remember getting on the plane in Indonesia and the, the trays would fall down and wouldn't stay <laughs> up. And it, the, the plane stayed on the tarmac for forever. And Andy would say, in Indonesia, things just go slow. You just have to <laughs> slow down and go with the flow. And, it, you know, it was, it was great. We met some wonderful, wonderful people. And like I said, I'm still friends with a lot of them. It's very, very special people over there. You got it. Um, and Love it's great that we've, we've been able it's, – it's been 10 years, actually more, since we started going over there. And uh, those people are still a big part of our lives. And it's great to see yeah. the progress that they're making. The interest yeah. there is still really, really strong despite all the – the crap we've all been through over the last couple of years, the, uh, yeah. the interest is still very strong there. So let's talk about involvement because, um, you know, you're one of the most go-getters in this industry. How does, you know, being involved, you know, shape or how has it shaped your journey? And what are some of the things that you've been responsible for over the years in promoting the ARBA, the, the Holland breed and really the entire industry? Oh my God. Um, wow. I mean, I, I all my life have had the the dedication that if you're involved in anything, you give back to it. No matter what I do, whether if my kids are involved in preschool, I always was really active in the preschool. If they were involved in grammar school, I took time and made sure I was there to be available to help. I made cobwebs. I got famous for making cobwebs in my daughter's third grade class. I do these giant 10 foot cobwebs. But so I've always done that. So when we got into the rabbits, it was the same thing. You have to give back. And how do you do that? Well, you get involved. And um, I've been really involved in the Holland Lot Club because that's been my breed for 40 years. And, you know, I've served as every office except for president. I never wanted to be president of anything. But vice president, secretary, treasurer, director. Um, I published the um, Hollander along with my husband. He helped with the typesetting for 11 years. Um, Was on their standards committee for a long time. What else would I do? Um, locally, I took over Cal State. Roger Wood had 
Cal State for a long time, and then he got sick and ultimately died, which was really sad. So I took over Cal State and, and built that up and just recently um, stepped down from that because I got sick. But that was kind of fun because you took a show that wasn't very big, and we made it – we kept out growing buildings and kept having to add on buildings, which was kind of fun. Yeah, so it's it became, become a huge show. It's a huge show, which was great. And I remember Randy saying, boy, you're starting to rival West Coast Classic. It was, yay, okay, that's good. Yeah, we like that competition. It, it, it drives both exactly. sides, doesn't it? It does. And as long as you're getting people involved. And the big thing was to have enough stuff to keep people involved and keep them happy. And that was the goal of that show. And that it was a lot of good specialty shows. And we'd always promised the specialty show people their judges. We made sure they got their judges. And, you know, if you keep people happy, the show goes really, really well. It's just you have to figure out how to keep people happy. And that's what we did. And then I got involved in Rabbit Producers. It's called the Rabbit Producers of Santa Clara Valley. No one in that club is from Santa Clara Valley. We're all from other counties. But actually, I take that back. Alicia here is from Santa yeah. Clara County, her and her mom. But um, it started with a group that we called ourselves the Crows. And that was, you know, Julie Spear and Kathy Groves and Dara Moorhead and um, – Oh, God, what's his name? There was a guy that moved back east, and I can see his face, but I can't think of his name. But we were the Crows, and we did some fun things. And one of the things we did, just to be crazy, is, of course, it was my idea. You know how I am. But I said, let's have a show, and let's have wine tasting. And they're all going, yeah, let's get the judges drunk. And I'm going, oh, God, no. So Scott Williamson and I judged, and um, we did the wine tasting. And we were a little inebriated in the second show in the afternoon. <laughs> And you'd host, hey, look at this one. Isn't this a good one? <laughs> it was pretty <laughs> funny. But we had a good time. And it was all about, those shows were all about having fun. And again, I think that what's happened is as the shows have gotten bigger and bigger, the, the fun seems to go out. I mean, it's harder because they're so large. I mean, they're cumbersome. I mean, how many rabbits pass through West Coast Classic? I mean, I can't even imagine. By the time, but the, by the time multiple shows and specialty yeah. shows and national shows are yeah. done, I mean, uh, almost 10,000, I think. It's it's, it's yeah. a lot of, of it, rabbits a, that pass through. Right. It's a different thing to manage than having a small show with 100 rabbits or a, a smaller show with 300 rabbits. You know, it, it's a different animal. Yes, it is. Um, so your involvement is huge and vast. And, um, oh, wait, I forgot about the NorCal Holland Lock Club. Hey. Okay, go for that. <laughs> Founded the NorCal Holland Lock Club. Shannon and I started that. We It was kind of fun. We decided to do a show and we decided we were going to have um, margaritas at the show and we we're going to have strawberry shortcake and lunch. And it was the same thing, just Holland simple. And that's how it started. And that was forever ago. And we still have it at the Coralita center under the trees and it's still casual. And we have a, a sauce, Coralita sausage sandwiches and strawberry shortcake for lunch. That's stuck around the whole time, which is kind of fun. But um, very fun. And what about your, I mean, this is a big one. Okay. Yeah. Uh, You've been uh, put on the Airbase Standards Committee, and you want to talk about involvement, and that, that's, the, that's like the Supreme Court of this association. What was that like being asked to be on that committee, and, and how, is it, um, how has it been for you? Um, I loved it. I still love it. Um, I was very honored to be asked. I, I still see it as just a huge honor. And I know I won't be on it forever because I don't think everyone should be on it forever. I think you get on it. And you give what you can give. I've given, I've accomplished a lot. I mean, I redid the glossary. I got the high headset in there. Um, we're doing a few other things right now that you guys don't know about that I don't want to talk about, which will be things that I'm excited about. But eventually someone will replace me. But my term there, and right now I think I'm the longest standing member. Brian, he told me that the other day. Um, it, it's been really wonderful. And, you know, 
I've had three different chairmen I've worked under. I worked under Cheryl Anglink, uh, Kathy Shulda, and now Bryony. And it, it's it's been an honor. It's really been an honor. Well, let's not um, just uh, sweep under the rug the high headset developments that you were in, you know instrumental in and getting into our latest copy of the standard. I think it's one of the most brilliant moves the ARBA has made. Uh, and that I'm not speaking for myself. I mean, I've traveled a lot this year, and judges across the country are elated that high headset breeds finally have their own sort of breed profile. Um, what what was the inspiring factor for you behind that? And do you want to talk a little bit about what that means for those that don't know what high headset uh, profile? Right. Um, and this is hard to do without illustrations. But basically, if you think of a snake, a snake has a low headset. The head is down on the body, low to the ground, right? If you think of a dog, the head is higher on the body. And so you have rabbits where their heads are naturally on the table when they're just, if you just take them out and put them on a table, their heads sit on the table, right? And you have high headset breeds that when you put them out on the table, the heads are held at a 45 degree angle from the body. And they're very different on the front end, the shoulder and the chest end than other rabbits. And you know, you have several breeds that are I five or six of them. I'm dwarfs, Hollands, fuzzy lobs, Jersey woolies. Um, there's more. I have chemo brains, so you know, we're not gonna go there. But um it was really important to me and with every standard that we've done, and I've been involved in three, I've pushed for that and we finally got it through on the third one. And we actually were talking about getting rid of the groups altogether. And I'm glad they didn't. And I'm glad it's in there because it's really important. I've spoken at ARBA judges conferences, um, as well as local conferences on high headset and what that means. And it's structurally different because you have a really short, deep shoulder to get that head up. It's like, if you took a, a Florida white and you took and pulled the head up and it took a big tuck and sew, sewed it up there, and the shoulder's short and deep like that. Um, and they also have a very full chest. And if, you know, you need both. It's not like uh, you see people now and what they do, they want these rabbits with these long skinny legs to pose up and they're, they're pushing up like a Britannia petite. That that's legs that are causing your head to go up. These rabbits don't have, they usually have short bone and short legs. I mean, it's not done by legs. It's done by the fact it's, it's governed by, by shoulder. The shoulder is really short and extremely deep. And that, was where the head attaches and then the chest kind of falls in line because the head's attached high so you have to have this full chest to fill that space under the head does that make sense it makes a lot of sense um i've never done this without illustrations so it's hard no it's it's really it means it's it's very telling and imagine you you know joining the arba back in 84 holland lops were a new breed they probably didn't have the high headset that we see today you know this breed profile that you have proposed and ultimately you know got adopted into our standard, would that have found its place 30 years ago in our standard? You know, it's interesting because way back, remember I talked about the the miniature French lops I had that were supposed to be Holland lops that had low headsets. Back then, the imports all had high headsets or most of them did. They might have been longer in the midsection. I'd say if anything, they, that was a major fault. But they, for the most part, had high headsets back then. Interesting. Um what did Holland Lops look like back then? We're going to actually dive into that, the Holland Lop portion of this interview next, because that is a big part of, of who you are. Um, what did Holland Lops look like in the early days and how have they evolved? And uh, what challenges have, has the breed, thanks to breeders like you of 40 years, done to you know make them better? Yeah, way back, um, 
you had East Coast Hollands and you had West Coast Hollands. The West Coast Hollands were the Mary Egans and the Hans Albrechts of the world. They they had a lot of color, which was, I mean, you saw smoke pearls and Siamese sables and all these different colors. It was crazy. But they had smaller heads, finer bone, and lower, lower headsets. Here, I just hung up on somebody. Sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, rejected. It rejected. Yes, exactly. Um, and then you had the East Coast Hans, which. Trying to get through. Sorry, Alan. Um, the East Coast Hollands had didn't have as good of bodies as the West Coast Hollands, but they had better heads and crowns. And over the years, it kind of melded together. Um, and you still have patches of the United States where it's not all there yet. You know, it's still area specific, but I think it's more uniform lately than what it's been in a long time. I mean, it's just been an evolution. I think that the rabbits were longer back when I look back to when, you know, it's like the second Florida convention. I won best of breed and best opposite breed. Those, I was looking at those pictures the other day. Those rabbits were long in comparison to what we're showing now, longer in the midsection. So we've shortened the midsection so that um, we're, they're more like dwarfs. I think you, you have one part head and two parts body instead of one part head and three parts body or four parts body. You saw that before. So I think that's a big difference. Um, I think you see better bone now. It's not that it wasn't there before, but it's more prevalent now. I think in some areas, the heads more recently have gotten smaller, which breaks my heart because I like the one part head and two parts body. Um, and I see an evolution going that way a little bit, which bothers me, but you know, it's an evolution. Um, you know, were Hollands recognized back in those early days when you first got them or were they still a breed in, in development? They they were recognized. It was back when I first started, God, I met Alec Brooks and everything. Um, in Orlando, they were a breed. So by the way, who, like who was Alec Brooks? Years before 84, they were a breed. So it was, was 79. Mm-hmm. See, I was right. Wasn't that far? Yeah. Yeah. Very good. See, she knows. <laughs> um, so and when I came in, what happened, it's really an interesting story. Um, from what I understand, Alec Brooks's father got him into Hollands for one reason or another. And he started importing them from Holland, of course. And then Jeff Harden decided to start importing some from a different club over there. And they had the all these rabbits that were imports had club ear numbers in their opposite ear from the tattoo ear. So you knew you know where they came from and that they were imports. And it, really, Jeff and Alec were at bitter ends with each other. They hated each other because a, they were both importing and they were both vying to get that portion of the bit. You know, they made a lot of money on these rabbits. Let's be honest. But, um, it, and who, who was, part. who was yeah. Alec Brooks? Yeah. For those who don't know, who was Alec well, Brooks? Who was he? He was, uh, a young kid from Florida whose dad got him into importing rabbits. But he ultimately, uh, took the Holland breed to acceptance into our standard. Correct. Yes, he did. He did. And Mary Louise Cowan was involved back then. The Crowders were involved. The, someone, Holbrook or someone with the H was involved. This was a long time ago. I, you know, I've forgotten a lot of this stuff, but it, it was very humble beginnings because there was a lot of warning. I remember I went to, it's really interesting, the Houston convention. I met Jamie Wardlow and we were sitting in the club meeting and there was this huge battle between Alec and Jeff. They had attorneys there and they were filming this. And at one point, 
someone stood up in the room and goes, I just want to go on record that I believe in motherhood and apple pie. And I remember Jamie and I look at each other and go, what the heck are we doing in here? This is crazy. <laughs> and that was the year there was a fist fight in the Howlin' Up judging area. I was like, oh, my God, you know. But, you know, um, we raised rabbits because we liked them and had fun. And, you know, it, it all worked out. That all went away. It took time. but So in your own herd, what have you over the last almost 40 years worked on extensively to improve and adhere to um, in, in your own? Oh, God. It's um, – I'm a head and ear person. I mean, I've always had heads. My herd is very dominant for heads and very dominant for ears. Bone, too. Um, recently, I've, uh, you know, Alicia here has some beautiful bodied rabbits, and she's – got me into raising better bodied rabbits and i actually have a couple otters in the barn now um you've converted me exactly i'm a color breeder now but um it's been kind of i've played with color for a long time you know it's it's interesting because pre-ajax ajax won best in show at convention and pre-ajax i was all about trying to breed the best best rabbit i could i had lots of wins at conventions and national shows I eventually had the ultimate win, which was really cool. And then after that, I said, well, I've done that. What am I going to do now? And then the emphasis came, well, let's make some pretty colored rabbits. And uh, it, it was not as easy as it sounds. You would think, okay, that's easy. Just bring color in. But it isn't easy. It's um, For some reason, oranges always had snipey faces at first. You know, And I'm a head person, so that was insulting. But I actually have a chin right now that will rival any of my torts. Um, a, che- a couple of chestnuts that will rival any of my torts um, and some oranges. And I still don't really like the oranges, but um, it's kind of fun. I've, I've enjoyed it. You know, there's other colors too. You know, I get blue torts and sable points and I got blue points. I got some beautiful blue points, which of course are not showable, but um, gorgeous rabbits. I mean, it, it's been fun. So well, that's sort of where well, I've Let's gone. talk about that color. Um, maybe update. You know, a lot of our guests are, they come from 50 breeds of rabbits, or maybe they're in somewhere in, in Europe where there are even more. What does colored Hollenlop mean? And what is tort? Well, tort is a color, and all Hollenlops were tort for a long, long, long time. And now anything that's not tort is a colored Hollenlop. And we used to tease about, oh, you're a colored breeder. I mean, it's like almost an insult to be breeding colored lops. But not anymore because a lot of people have really nice ones. I mean, Alicia here has a blue-eyed white that's to die for. I mean, Devin Nicole have had some good ones. Rachel Maestro Angelo, who's a really good Holland breeder, also has had some chestnuts that are beautiful. Um, and you go other places. I was in Oregon and I saw an opal. I think it was an opal buck that I loved. I mean, it's it's not as uncommon as it used to be. So that's kind of fun, you know. And maybe someday, not today, not in this standard, obviously, because the standard's already done, but. Uh, maybe they'll have Hollands go to groups because, you know, at a big convention, you know, we'll have classes of 150 or 200 for the solid junior doe class, you know, at a big convention. And that that's rugged. I mean, you, no judge can do that well. I mean, it's just really hard. You do an adequate job, but it's impossible to judge a class of 200 rabbits and do it well. Well, I've done that class, for example, at convention, and it, it was, yeah, you're, you're fried afterwards. It's a lot of work. You are most fried, of them, exactly. Most of them it's, are torts, or last time I did them, they were torts, and I imagine, you know, in Louisville yeah. next week, they're still going to be mostly torts. Would you yeah. say that torts were like white New Zealand's? They were, they, they are like yes. the gold standard? Yes, and they, I think they still are, and I think if you get newer judges, they're very reluctant to pick a colored rabbit, even if it's good, because torts are the standard. I mean, and they know that it, it's safe. It's a safe decision. 
you know, you, you briefly touched on bone, but I have to say that I believe your mark on the Holland lot breed um, is bone. You know, I got my license back in 07 and Kevin Stanford, who I consider he's like my, my brother in this journey. Oh, I love we're, we're still too. incredibly good friends. We were both licensed at the same time. And we actually both learned Holland lops because neither one of us had raised them on your rabbits because they were some of the first rabbits that we judged as we were getting our licenses. And then, you know, within the first couple of years of, of having that license. And I mean, I'm telling you, like your bone um, is still a template in our mind when we go through Holland Lops wherever we judge around the country, yeah. around the world. Yeah. How does bone but, equate to to head? Because you mentioned head as as your you know, go to. Th- this is also a visual thing. When I'm judging, sometimes and I want to talk about bone, I'll find the longest, skinniest person at the table and say, "Hold up your hands." And usually it's a guy that's six foot two with a really long neck, and they have long, skinny fingers and skinny bone. And then I'll have someone like me that's a little more chunky, shorter bone, hold up their hands. And the hands look really different because your bone controls your structure. And if you are heavy boned, usually your bones are shorter. Everything about you is shorter. I always wanted to look like Twiggy, Ellen. You probably know who Twiggy was. She was a model way back that was super skinny and long. But I will never because I... I can't get a long neck, you know, I have a short neck, a short, thick neck, and I have shorter fingers and heavier bone. Um, Are you saying you're a hollow up? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't nope, know. nope, but, I there's mean, nothing wrong with that. No, exactly. But I mean, you look at Britannia Petites, I mean, in comparison, they're, they're finer in bone, they're longer, they're more refined looking, they're not chunky looking it's bone defines who you are and if you look at people i mean i like to people watch if you look at people bone follows through everything it, you know follows through head hands legs neck the whole thing it, it's really interesting cats dogs pigs i mean it's all the same bone is bone what do you think is the next frontier for holland lops i mean you touched on color but what what breed faults i mean, I, I still think that holland lops they're winning best in show convention as we're going to talk about in, in your own win and and others have done it too uh, they are a best in show breed. What do you think when you judge Holland Lops around the country or when you even look at your own or maybe Alicia's or your friends, what's the next frontier for the breed? What do you think that Holland Lops need to? Imp- Honestly, and you're going to laugh, loin. And I know that people will laugh and go, oh, but they're not Florida whites. But my goal, and Alicia and I talk about this, yeah. you know, we, a lot. We debate about for this sure. a lot. Um, I, I want, I like the Joe Kim version of a hollow up where they have a nice deep round loin that peaks appropriately. I think you can have that with a short shoulder and a deep shoulder and a high headset. Um, hind quarters are totally separate and I want to breed a rabbit. And Ajax was very much like this, where when you felt him, if you covered up the front half and your eyes were closed, you could say this rivals a Florida white. I love it. And let's talk about that. That's a very interesting concept. And I know you love to use your diagrams, which you can't do in the podcast. Um, relate relate loin shape to hindquarters because you just said that they're 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 separate. So what is what does okay. good hindquarters mean? And then what does a good loin mean? And how are they oh God, disconnected? This is so hard without. I, I'm really uh, it's, it's on, a, come on, Chris. You can do it. Um, when you're feeling the hindquarter, this is an easy way to do. It. If you're you have a rabbit posed appropriately, not overposed and tucked. It's, it's sitting there correctly. If you feel where the top of the, the hip is, it should be a half inch to an inch lower than where the spine is. And that's an easy way to see if you're going to have depth of loin. Now, you're going to have to have coverage of that loin. It has to muscle over that area and fill that out. 
But what I see in Hollands is very often that hip is up almost equal to where the spine is. And they think those are good hindquarters because maybe they're smooth and they have nice muscling over that. But they haven't felt a Florida white. You got and it. I always encourage people to go, you know, if you have time, go feel a commercial rabbit. If it's not a Florida, find a good Minirex or find a New Zealand or find something that has a good hindquarter on it. And see where that's different than what you have. Because I believe that all rabbits should have good hindquarters and deep loins. And, you know, we are in a day and age where our profile is obsessed upon. We are in yes. a Facebook, social media atmosphere. Profiles are what we see when we learn about rabbits on, on online, right? Right. Do you think that you can appreciate a loin in a profile? Um, I think you can see the structure, and I think the structure is great having the right depth. I think, you know, I would like to look at them from the rear and see that depth equals width. I'm a big proponent of depth equals width. I think if you feel a good loin, there's nothing like that. When I judge meat pens, it's really kind of fun because I always tell, ask people, what part of the cow do you like to eat? Do you want to eat the chuck steak or do you want to eat the filet? And everybody wants to say it's filet mignon because it's better, right? If you say sirloin, but you know we don't listen to them. But what the loin is, is the filet. And you should be able to get that on any rabbit. And I remember once doing this talk, and much more in depth because I had rabbits to talk about. And some guy came over to me afterwards. He goes, yeah, I'm the lamb judge here. He goes, you sound just like me. And I just laughed because it's the same on every breed, you know, whether it's a pig or a, a, a cow or a sheep or whatever, you know, you eat the loin, you know, it's the best part. Even if it's a breed that you don't eat, correct? Yes. Even if it's a breed you don't eat. What would, what advice would you give to new ARBA judges um, when it comes to judging Hollands? Because if you ask any judge, new or veteran, they will say, you know, judging Hollands are, are, are hard because of the posing aspect, the high headset. Um, I mean, I know I've judged classes of, of Holland Lops. Probably yours were part of those big classes where at initial glance, you're like, uh, nah, you kind of dismiss it. And then you go back through a second time and you're like, where were you? Where did you just come to the exactly. table? Like exactly. you don't look anything like who, what you look like now. So what advice would you give to those new judges that, that are challenged? You know, with the, the biggest advice is use a light hand, really use a light hand. Um, if you really want to see a rabbit and you don't always have, there's not always time when you're judging to do this, but put it out and let it move, watch it move. You know, any rabbit, you watch any rabbit move, you're going to see so much more than if you pull it out, pose it real quick, crunch it up, and then just try to feel it and throw it back in the coop. You don't get to really know that rabbit. Uh, but we don't always have the time or the luxury of time to do that. But that's that's how you really learn, and that's how you really judge. Um, if, yeah, you were, if, if you were, say, a young Hollenlop judge that was uh, given the, the amazing opportunity to judge Hollenlops at a convention or national, um, any tips for those? <laughs> well, you have to be able to do large classes for one thing. And I'd say if you don't know how to do a large class, find someone that knows how and have them teach you because the classes are really big. And a lot of judges that haven't judged judge large classes get lost. So I think that's that's key to begin with. Um, but you wouldn't be asked to judge them if you weren't good at judging them. So because you know, the clubs vote on judges. That so is you true. Have, you have to assume that they know how to judge. The only thing that would be a difficult situation is is the size and so, um, well let's talk about that i know you don't you can't do your your very classic chris in person but big classes are a massive challenge to any judge 
What's yeah. what, how do you go about doing it? Because I know you've judged big classes at conventions and national shows. Is there a formula that that maybe that you always go to to sort of doing that initial sort at least to to, yes. to help yes. you out? You want to share that with judges? Well, the first the first thing you do is I, I walk the, the class. I just look at them in the coops, and then I go through and I do the good, the bad, and the ugly. The ugly are easy because those are the ones that aren't going to make the top. You know it. They're gone. They're no place. It's easy. Um, the top of the class, you know, because they're, you love them. They're really good. You usually put them in the back row somewhere. The middle is more difficult because it's mediocre and it's mediocre differently. Some of them will have body faults. Some of them will have head and ear and crown faults. So you have to set a point that's a cutoff point. It, this is a little tricky because if you set that cutoff point between no place and placing too high, you're not going to have enough rabbits at the end to do the 25 required rabbits per class, right? And give comments on them. If you set it too low, you're going to have too many left at the end. And then you have to go through them again, which takes a lot more time. And that's just experience to know where to set that point. And honestly, that's why I walk the, as much of the class that fits on the table first to get kind of a feel for where I'm going to set that point of no place and placement. That's really key. And, and finding that it, it's, there's a gestalt to that. You know, you, you can't teach someone that. You have to just do it and learn it, if that makes any sense. And then once you do that, it, it's easy. I mean, the bottom of the class is easy because you know, you know, the ears are in the air or, you know, it's really fine bone or the head's a weasel beak. Hey, those are at the bottom. Easy. Slam dunk. And the top ones are easy because, you know, you get them out. They pose themselves up. They look great. They feel great. They have great flesh and fur. You put them in the back. It's that middle. And Honestly, when you do the middle, this is another interesting point, is it doesn't matter if you're 32nd place or 27th place, or it doesn't matter if you're 20th place and 15th place. You're still in the middle of the pack. Once you start getting to 12th and 11th, you're almost there to the top 10. That matters. And you need to spend time there really going over those, making a difference between 27th and 25th place. Really, it doesn't matter. So say you've got a class of 150 Hollenlop solid junior does and okay. you are judging them. You're not showing that you're it. judging them. Yeah, you've done, done it. it. You've got 24 holes to play with. Yeah. How do you, how do you, how do you do that? You, you have to, like I said, you walk it, you decide where your cutoff is going to be from the no places. And I, I've done it. I always make that a little lower than what I think it needs to be because then you could go through and do a, a second cut, which does take time. But I think it, that you only have, you only get a quarter of the rabbits up at a time. And you don't usually have enough judging holes behind you to hold as many as you'd like to have. So you have to be very careful where that point is. So you go through and do the good, the bad, the ugly, and you get rid of the ugly. And you try to get the good down so that you can keep, you know, if you have four batches coming up, because you have 24 cages and there's 100, right? That's four. So you try to use a quarter of your cages behind there. I, you have to assume the rabbits in quality will come up evenly. And I've had things happen like at the very end, a bunch of good rabbits came up and they were amazing. Or at the beginning, there were a bunch of amazing rabbits and you want to be sure you have room to keep them because what if the rest of the class all sucks? Cause you don't know how it's going to come up, you know? Yeah. It's, it's tough. It's, and as even as veteran as a judge can be, it's, it's still one of the hardest days you'll encounter. Don't you agree? I think it's one of the most exhilarating days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, yeah. I really do. I, there's no more thrill than to judge a class like that. But you work. You work really, really hard. And you walk back and forth a lot. It, it's physical as well as mental. Um, I, I just get in my element. I love it. I absolutely love it. The challenge is fun. 
I bumped into but, a, a book at Kevin Whaley's house, and you've been there many times as well, down in San Diego. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was dairy cattle judging. And uh, I took it home. Actually, I still have it. I stole it from Kevin. I never gave it back. And in the opening chapter, the, the judge who's writing about judging dairy cattle says that judging is a stimulating game. Yes. I agree. I totally agree. There's nothing more fun. It's so much fun to do. Um, it, it's especially with pretty rabbits. I mean, there's nothing like judging pretty rabbits. Judging mediocre rabbits is not fun. I mean, I've been places where I was flown in to judge Holland Lops and there's 20 solid senior bucks and they're all probably grand champions and they're all evenly mediocre. And I didn't like a single one. They were all, there was no ugly and there was no good. It was all middle. And it was like, oh my God, what am I going to do with this class? You know? So, I mean, yeah. there's challenges and that's not as exhilarating as going somewhere and saying, oh my God, look what I found. These are so beautiful. I just love these rabbits. I mean, th- that's just really, it's special. Have you ever judged best in show after, uh, you know, going, going somewhere they're flying or maybe a local show after judging best in show and then going, gosh, five of the best rabbits I saw today were actually in not only one breed, but maybe one class. And yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. I have. I have. It, what it, advice? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. I was going to ask the next question. And that's um, what advice to new judges in general would you give? You've been doing this a long time, longer than I um, you actually gave me my judge test. I mean, I, I remember. vividly remember that day in Watsonville. Um, you know, aside from Holland Lops, what advice would you give to new judges? Whether they were women judges or, or male judges or gay judges or straight judges, it doesn't matter. What what do you tell those judge applicants that work under you? If, if you could tell them something and if they were listening now, what would you? You know, it's, and I work with, I've worked with a lot of people. When you come to me to work, no rabbits. Don't expect me to teach you about rabbits. If you don't know rabbits, you shouldn't be there. What I will teach you is how to judge. And there's three parts to judging. One is actually placing the rabbits. I mean, you have to place them, right? Because you have no, you've no rabbits to do that. The second part is you have to be able to give good comments. And what that means is make sure you make first place sound better than second, because if you don't, everyone on the other side table is going to be laughing at you. And the third one is the entertainment factor. And that's how you project yourself, how you look, um, how you handle yourself and being able to enjoy the process too. I mean, I think that's really important. I know when you first start judging, you don't have time to really enjoy the process. You're terrified. Um, and that's normal. I mean, you have to just assume that that's normal, but I, I can teach you how to appear calmer and better than what you are inside. What is that, uh, that Pareto's law? It's like 80% something, 20% the other. Yeah. W- would you agree to that when it comes yes. to judging, when it comes to skill versus the people skills? Um, I think it's thirds. I think a third of it is the actual judging. A third of it is the actual, um, reasons. And a third of it is the actual, how you, the process, how, how you judge, how you hold yourself, how entertaining are you? You know, there's judges, um, that I may not agree with. I think their judging sucks. Right. But I'll like watching them because they're funny as sin. I mean, I'll sit there and I will just laugh and be entertained. and It's wonderful. And they entertain me that that's great. And, and it's enjoyable. And if they don't pick my rabbit, I don't care because I've had a really good time. And then there's judges that are really, really good judges, but they don't talk and they don't share that knowledge with the exhibitors. And I think part of judging is being a teacher. You have to teach the people there because otherwise they're going to keep showing the the crappy rabbits forever. You need to teach them so they don't do that. Um, You know, and then there's those in the middle that maybe are mediocre at everything. And then there's, you get the handful of judges that 
can judge a good rabbit and pick a good rabbit and teach about the good rabbit and entertain the crowd along the way. And I think there's not a ton of them, but those are the judges I relish. And those are the judges I try to bring in when I hire judges for shows. I love it. All right. Let's go back to 2014. ARBA convention is in Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, It was a big year for you. How many uh, Hollands did you, did you bring and how were you feeling about your entry uh, going oh, into God. 2000- this, is, this is this is a really funny story. Oh my God, I was so excited. I had what I called my E series girl. I, I was judging, by the way, I was judging mini racks during the Holland judging with Johnny Hausner and um, Armando, and we had more fun doing mini racks. We were doing youth mini racks. We had this one sable point that was, I'm sure, a half pound overweight. Teased about it. I kissed it in the photo. You know, there, there you go. But we had more fun judging. It was great, and I was so hyped up because. I knew I had the best entry I ever had for a convention. And those rabbits that were my best ones were these E-series does. They all had E-names, you know, Evie, Evelyn, Esther. I mean, there's a bunch of them, right? And I was so excited. And Becky Orman, bless her soul, was watching the judging. And she, she'd come over to report to me, well, Evie no placed. I went, what? Evie no placed? Are you kidding me? Oh, well, there's more. Okay. She came over, oh, Evelyn no placed. Oh my God, who's judging? I mean, this is crazy, right? So then she comes and she says, Well, your senior buck won first. I went, I don't care. How did those e girls do? Those e girls were my own. They were the best. I just knew all of them, no place, Dallin. Every single last one of my e girls, no place. There had to be six of them, right? Wait, so you, was, you, wait, 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 stop. You won the solid senior buck class, which is arguably the most competitive class at a convention. And you're saying, Where are my e girls? Exactly, because I love those does. I love those does. I mean, I knew Ajax was good. I mean, I knew he'd placed in the top five before I left home because he was a, he was an awesome rabbit. He had several best in shows. He was great, right? But those e-girls were just, I don't know. I, it, it's funny. I look back, and they didn't look as good as I remembered them as, in the pictures, which is even funnier. But so anyway, so he wins. And, uh, okay, I gave one his class. My e-girls bombed. And I had some other replacements and so, no other first, but um, – I did pretty well because I had a really strong entry. And then he won Best of Breed and they came and told me. And I was, I was excited. It was great. But I had had a really good convention up to that point. I had had, we did RabbitCon and I was on fire. I owned the room. It was like so much fun teaching RabbitCon that year. It was like, it was just amazing. And then I had had so much fun judging mini racks. It was just really amazing as well. Um, I got voted in to pick a group in the Best of, Best of Show Youth Judging. I went, it just doesn't get better than this. And I remember taking Ajax over to be in the Best in Show presentation. And I had to give him to someone because I had to do the Best in Show Youth, right? And so I did that. I, can't, I don't remember what I picked, but it was fun and I loved it and it was great. And I finally, um, they're on stage with the rabbits. And I'm almost not even there with my rabbit. I can't remember who had it there, but I'm not there with my rabbit. Ajax is there, but I'm still wandering around trying to find him. And I did get there and I did get to put him on the stage and everything. And I went and sat down and I found Scott Rodriguez to sit with. And we're sitting there and he's going, your rabbit looks really good up there. I went, oh no, I've had such a good adventure. That's it. He's done. I'm done. It's like, it's been an awesome convention. You know, I've, I've won as much as I can. This is, I'm happy. And, um, Ruthann Bell was judging and he goes, Chris, Chris, he's poking me. I think she's going to pick a rabbit. And I went, no, 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 not going to happen. And she picked my rabbit. I went, oh my God, this is icing on the cake to an absolutely stupendous convention. I'm so excited. I, this is, I, I would never have thought this would happen. 
And uh, so I'm, this is great. And so then they bring out the winners at the end of, of the groups and uh, Wade Burkhalter's judging. And I'm going, oh God, Wade, Wade is like one of my all time favorite judges. He judges on structure. I like the mind warp with him. That guy's amazing. And I super, I have super amount of respect for him. Right. And I'm going, oh my God, the dwarf looks good. The Angora, I think it was an Angora up there. Look good. Whatever else was up there looked great. And I'm going, oh, I'm really happy. I, I won best of group. I won best of breed. My e-girls bomb, but it's okay. Um, and then they announced Best in Show and I won. And I, I literally don't remember much after that because I was shell-shocked. I could not believe that that happened. I mean, you know, Hollins didn't win Best in Show very often. And I knew it was a nice rabbit. I loved that rabbit. Uh, you know, that rabbit's all over my pedigrees in my barn. He bred a lot of those afterwards. But it was it was surrealistic. I, I don't know what to say other than that. You just, you were like, oh, my God. If you look at the photos from that, I, I look shell-shocked. I look like, oh, my God, how could this be happening? I'm going to say I look for photos for this for the promo of this podcast. And I there are a lot of photos of you after the win. And you you as you as you described, you were like you were not the Chris that we all know. You were qu- rather quiet. I, I couldn't believe it. Exactly. Exactly. I was like, is this a dream? Do I need to pinch myself? What? It was really weird. It was just a really weird thing. I mean. It was like, oh my God. <laughs> so it's crazy to think about. That was six yeah. years ago now. Yeah, it was six years ago. Do you want to and do it again? Is dead. He died a, a while back. But uh, man, I have, I still have sons out of him. I have five or six sons. Alicia has a son. Yeah. Um, and a couple, I have three does out of him still. But he's pr- pretty much on just about every one of my pedigrees. Well, you, you win the biggest show in the world. Do you want to do it again? Um, I believe, and, and maybe I'm wrong. I believe a lot of winning best in show, whether it's at a show or at a convention, not, you have to have a good rabbit. I mean, obviously you have to have a good rabbit. You're not going to win, but I think some of it's luck. It's getting the right judge on the right rabbit. Um, if a different judge had judged my rabbit for group, it may not have gone down the same way. You just don't know, you know, you really don't. But um, would I like to do it again? I think it'd be nice, but I also like to see it shared I think one of the nice things about our hobby is it's not, it's not precise. Different judges can judge the same group of rabbits and different rabbits are going to win. And that way a lot of people feel good. Okay. So I'm not selfish enough to think that I need to win again. I like seeing different people win. And I think it's a good thing. It's a good thing for the hobby. If that makes sense. But has it, has winning best in show stopped your, your, your drive? It changed me. Um, after it's like I'm very goal oriented. Okay, I set goals. I had several best best of breeds at conventions, several best opposites. One year I won best of breed, best opposite, and best display. I mean, I've done it all now. I mean, I've won best of show. I went. One of my goals was to go to a local show and take one rabbit and win best in show. I did that. I went to um, and it wasn't. It was pre Ajax. I went to a show, and someone was judging, and the rabbit I brought, it might have been Aragon. Maybe it was after Ajax. It could have been Aragon. Got last in its class out of five. Fifth out of five. And in the second show, it was best of breed and best in show. So I took one rabbit and one best in show. So I've done that. Um, I think now, I think now I'd like to win big with with a chin or a chestnut. I think that would be amazing. Is it going to happen anytime soon? I don't know. I mean, I, it takes, it's, it's a gutsy move for a judge to pick a non-torrid. 
<laughs> yes, it is. But do you feel like, um, you know, you mentioned earlier that judges are, new judges especially, are apprehensive on those colored rabbits. Yes. Do you hope that one day that, that color bias is no Yes, but I think it's going to take time. It's going to take a lot more people than me raising non-tort rabbits, you know. It's kind of like okay, you judge dwarfs. You go into judge dwarfs and you get, God forbid, fawns. I mean, what's your first reaction, Alan, to that? Are you going to find your best of breed winner in the fawns? Yeah, no. Okay, there you go. So it's the same kind of thing. There's certain colors that just don't, you know, do it. And I, I just would like to be that person that can make it happen. So who knows? You know, I still have, you know, I still have time. There's no more, no one more driven than I know <laughs> to pull that off than than you. So let's talk about the last last year. You know, we haven't seen a lot of each other um, no. in the last eighteen months because of COVID and then RHD, especially here in the West. Um, and we miss you so much. Uh, what's, what's been going on beyond rabbits in your personal life over the last? Well, you're, you're asking me to talk about having cancer. Um, last summer I was diagnosed with, um, high grade B cell lymphoma and, um, lucky for me, my doctor, and I actually, it's really interesting. I had it in my left maxillary sinus, so right above my eye. So I had this thing growing below my eye, pushing my eyeball, which was a bit scary because I started seeing lightning bolts in my eye. But um, my doctor saw and said, you have a tumor. It's either sarcoma or lymphoma and referred me to an oncologist. And she was sharp enough to say, I'm sending you to Stanford. And um, I saw her in the morning and by two o'clock, she said, leave right now. Don't pass go. Just throw some stuff in a suitcase. You're going to Stanford now. Admit yourself through the emergency room. And um, they have a lymphoma lymphoma clinic there that's pretty amazing they their motto is we treat to cure and um, i spent 53 days up at stanford getting chemo um and 53 nights and last thanksgiving up there which their food sucked which is kind of sad but um i've had two negative pet scans which is what they do they look for metabolic disease with a pet scan and i've had two negative ones and once i get to two years i'm pronounced cured but they think i'm going to do very well i look when you look at me, I look healthy. Um, I have hair again, which is nice. I mean, it's short, but it's nice. Um, so I, I've, I've been doing really well. I mean, I've been riding a bike 100 miles a week. Um, and I'm driven. You know me. I'm driven to get healthy. And um, yeah, I feel good. I mean, it's been, it's been an interesting journey. I think I'm 73. So when you get old, shit happens. You know, I, I don't care whether you get heart disease. Some people get heart disease. Some people get cancer. Some people get aneurysms. But when you get old, you start seeing your friends having all this stuff. And uh, my cross to bear was having lymphoma, you know, and was it bad? Parts of it were bad. But I mean, hey, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing great. I'm still immunocompromised. Um, but like I tell people, they go, isn't that horrible? But how do you feel about it? I go, well, given your choice, you have two choices, death or being immunosuppressed. What are you going to pick? I mean, no one's going to pick death. They're going to say they're going to be immunosuppressed. So. I'm in a situation, especially with COVID, where I can't be around large crowds of people, which is why I'm not going to convention this year, because, you know, I could catch the flu and it could end me up in the hospital because I don't have, I can't produce antibodies yet. They hope that that will resolve by February, which puts me a year out from chemo and I should be recovered from the rituxin that I took. So we'll see, you know, well, but we you know, given you, the choice, you have two choices, you have death or you have you know, immunosuppression. I'm going to pick the immunosuppression every time. Heck yeah. What, what were rabbits like for you during cancer and chemo? You know, it's 
really interesting because the first thing you know you you have to tell them a little bit about yourself and I I, I you tell them I'm a ARBA rabbit judge and they look at you like you're crazy okay, what the heck is a rabbit judge you know and um, they go well you don't have a barn right I go well, I have a barn they go no you cannot go in your barn for the course of chemo at least not at all and uh, there's too much infection risk the hay has mold the rabbits have poop that's full of bacteria and you have they wipe out your white cells so you have no immunity so I was very lucky, and um, I have Alicia here with me. She came over once a week during that time and helped me and would clean the barn, and we'd set up. It's so funny. I was, I look back in the pictures. I was pale and bald and like, oh, my God, I could barely walk. Remember when I, you I couldn't could, even go to the mailbox. I couldn't walk to the mailbox. No, I was just weak. I mean, they gave me four units of blood over a period of several weeks. I, I was <laughs> not not good, but she would set up a card table, and I would come up and sit at the card table, and she would bring me rabbits to play with. And she'd say, what should we breed this with? And I'd say, okay, let's do that. She goes, well, what about this? And it was really fun. I so looked forward to those weekly visits. You have no idea. It was really special. And if you have, I'm telling everyone that's listening, if you have a friend that has cancer, go be with them. You don't have to talk. You can just sit with them or go do something with them. Um, you know, not everybody comes by like that. It was so special. And honestly, I would do anything for her. I mean, I owe her a lot for just all those weeks of, of being there with me. I mean, it, friends are for. it is what friends are for, but anyway, that's yeah. power to the rabbit family, right? It was very, very special. And, um, it kept me in rabbits. Honestly, if I didn't have that because I couldn't do anything, I probably would have said, let's get rid of them. You know, I, cause you couldn't go up there. You couldn't do anything, you know, for weeks, for six months, for six months, I was, you know, banned from my barn. Barn banning. <laughs> when you were at home or in the hospital, were you thinking about rabbits? You were thinking about surviving, Alan. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's bothering you with stuff. Yeah, she'd be bothering I, I, It's so funny. I'd go and they know when I came in because I would, um, I'd bring my home pod and I'd play Hawaiian music or 50s music, or whatever. And I would bring stuff to kind of fix up the room. And, you know, you just, you, I learned to knit. I made a bunch of beanies gave people beanies that was kind of a a beanie phase but um you you just you go through it you don't have you'd like to say you have time to think about it but you just go through it and having friends help was huge it was really huge and now like I said now I'm good I mean I'm riding a bike I'm back up in the barn I'll breed my own rabbits you know well let's talk about that because bike riding on a personal level meant a lot to you before cancer Yes. Um, and if anyone's friends with you on Facebook, we know Chris Emney loves to ride her bike for a lot of miles. Um, yeah. And if you're not friends with Chris on Facebook, definitely recommend adding you as a friend and, and watching your, your, your journey in life, whether it's rabbits or cancer or riding your bike. What is riding a bike to you? What do you do? And how, God on earth, how many miles do you do when you, when you. <laughs> well, you know, I've been doing it for about seven years. When I first started, I had retired and I joined a women's club and there's a few of us, they said, well said, we all said, well, let's go ride bikes. And we'd ride five miles and we'd say, oh my God, we have to kiss the ground. We are cyclists, five miles. And I mean, I ride, now I ride for 400, 450 miles a month. Um, I, I started out to 2000 a year, then 3000 miles a year, then 4000 miles a year, then 5000 miles a year. And then I got sick. And then this year I will do 4,000 miles. And considering I was on chemo for the first part, I'm really excited because I'm riding 100 to 130 miles a week. And um, I love it. I mean, it's, there's nothing like having the wind in your face. 
and the thrill of going downhill at 35 miles an hour. Um, I mean, going up the hill, you have to go up the hill to do the downhills, but I, I love it. And there's different riders. There's people that like riding mountain bikes and, and that's very technical. I'm not a technical rider. I'm what's called an endurance rider. Um, I'm not a sprinter. I'm not the best climber, but I'm an endurance rider and I like going, you know, we just completed a month ago, two metric centuries. One was 62 miles, one was 67 miles and it took all day and it was just totally fun. And, you know, I, I saw a commercial once and someone had asked this girl, what makes you so fast? And she, she goes, well, is it your legs or is it your bike? She says, well, I have a nice bike. And yeah, I also have a very nice bike. I'm a very expensive bike. Um, but that's not what does it. And is it your legs? And, you know, well, my legs are strong, but it's not just that. It's your heart. And if you have that in you, it's, it's with your heart you ride. And I ride with my heart. And I love it. You know, it, it's like the thrill of um, the thrill of judging a really good best in show. It's the same kind of thrill that you get, you know? Yeah, it, it, it's very And that's inspiring. probably way too much information on cycling. I mean, people are probably going, oh, my God. No, no, no. But, it's a big part of who you are, and it's been a big part of your recovery, wouldn't you say? We, it, it, is, it is. Part of it, I mean, which you don't know, I post all these pictures on Facebook, which some people, if they follow me, they know that I bike three to four times a week, and I put photos up. And I had a cousin that had congestive heart failure that was living on oxygen that would live for my photos. And that's where it all started was I did those photos for him so that he could see them and enjoy my rides. And he would say, I'm so glad I feel like I'm out there with you because he couldn't leave home. I mean, he was bedridden and he died about four months ago and I'm still doing the photos, but I'm not as into it as I was because I really did that for him. It was really special for him. Let's talk about Matt. Um, Matt is your husband of how many years? Oh God, I'm 53. I don't know. We were married in 68. And he's, he's been a rock in your life. I mean, I know Matt from the Triple Crowns, those Hall and Lob specialty shows every July, which are so special. And he's oftentimes uh, serving up the Corlito sausages, right? In yep. the booth or, yep. or helping to set up and tear down the displays. What does it mean to have a spouse that maybe may not do rabbits, but supports you in rabbits? And I think that's a good way to put it because Matt, <laughs> Matt, oh God, Matt, Matt, Matt is really good at plants. He, he has a master's in horticulture. He is really good at plants, but he can't pick out a good rabbit to save himself. He picks out these pets and we have to, we have blue, remember blue bonnet? Oh God. Blueberry. Blueberry. She's like this five pound blue doe with no head. Oh my God. Matt likes her. She's still there. Um, so, you know, you do have to keep a few rabbits that he likes and that's okay. But he's, he's great as far as cleaning and feeding and helping and being there. Um, I think that if you don't have a spouse that supports you in this habit, it's going to be tough because, you know, rabbits really take a lot of time. You've got to deal with them every day. Um, You have to spend time up there breeding. It's a, it's very time consuming. And if you don't have a spouse that appreciates that you're going to, it's going to be a roadblock. Yeah. I think we all, if we don't have a rabbit spouse, we aspire to have a mat in our lives for sure. Exactly. I mean, it's kind of funny because with the cycling, he'll ride with me twice a week and he's, everyone goes, he's so kind. You're so lucky of this kind. It's like, I'm kind too, you know, it's not just Matt, but he's always the one, there's always someone at the front. I'm always at the front of the pack with the young guys. Right. And Matt's always what we call the sweep. The last one to make sure that everybody makes it and doesn't have a flat tire and is doing well. And you know, he's, he's the rock for everybody. And, uh, I guess I need rocks in my life, you know? 
Yeah, we all do. We we all would love a mat in our life. Matt's, yeah, that's pretty cool. I am appreciative, though. I mean, it's you have a, been, you have, you have a stellar relationship, and yeah, uh, anyone that you. looks anyone anyone that's in, been involved in relationships recently knows that they don't last very long. And to see a marriage of fifty three years and a partnership like the two you have is it's pretty special. Yeah, it works. It works. It, it really works. All right, Chris, I've kept you a long time, longer than I told you we were going to, but I had a feeling this podcast was going to be a long is it, way. Oh, it, oh, my God, it is long. Oh, it's, shoot. It's been I, a great one. I hope one. I didn't tell bad stories, you know? Oh, no, your stories are always amazing. <laughs> I could, if, if you want, I could start telling some Chris stories of the time, times that we've been together. But they're amazing. <laughs> I love my time with you. So I'm going to end it uh, with one last question. And it's a question that Brian and I ask all of our podcast guests. If you could hypothetically describe your your perfect rabbit show, what would it be like for Chris Emney? Perfect rabbit show? It'd be like, it'd be the Triple Crown with 150 beautiful Hollands entered, three of my favorite judges, a long lunch where we all sit down and look at each other's rabbits and touch each other's rabbits, and cheesy Bavarian sausages and strawberry shortcake. There you go. <laughs> I love it. Chris Emney, you are an icon in our industry and we miss you so much and we are inspired by your drive, whether it's in person or on Facebook, or if we've been lucky enough to have you in our lives, giving judges tests or working under you or having you as a judge. Thank you for your 40 years of dedication. This podcast was extra special to me. Um, You mean so much to me. Um, Ditto, Alan. It was extra. I would never have done this if it wasn't you. You know that. I told someone the other day, I told someone the other day, I go, yeah, I'm, I'm really busy. I can't do anything the next two weeks. I go, Alan asked me to do two presentations for Rabicon. I've got to, you know, work those out. And I go, if it was anyone else, I would have just said no. <laughs> but for you, I would do anything. You know that. That means the world team. Chris, Alicia, thank you so much for joining us on Best in Show podcast, uh, episode 29. Uh, we will miss you in person in Louisville, but we will see you via Zoom at your amazing Rabicons. Thank you. Thanks so much for doing this, Alan. We appreciate you, Chris. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful night. And uh, we hope to see you in 2022. Okay. I'll be there. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Bye. Alan, what a wonderful interview with Chris. And I'm so glad that this worked out when it did. I know we will be missing her at convention this year. Um, The Standards Committee is not going to be the same without her. She definitely adds a certain exuberance to that day. Um, So I'm glad everyone gets a little bit of Chris Zimney on their way to convention. She can be a part of it that way and a part of it during RabbitCon. For those who attend, she will be giving a presentation via Zoom. Yes, we're super psyched to have her in our presence, even though it's via Zoom, because experience and exuberance, there's a lot of E words, as actually Chris <laughs> talks about in her interview with uh, some of the names she came up with her rabbits during the 2014 convention when she was naming her her expected does that didn't actually go on to win, but it was her buck that went best in show. Not an E name. So uh, yeah, lots of lots of great E adjectives to tag with Chris. We will miss her there. Uh, we're so excited to have her here on this podcast, and everyone looks forward to having her back at the convention next year. Yes, she will be in Reno next year. As always, we will end our episode with a quote. Um, I found this one. I loved it. It's kind of similar to what I told her when I found out, hey, Cancer, you picked the wrong broad. <laughs> She's going to love that. <laughs> 
All right, everyone, don't forget, talk rabbits, talk havies, follow us on the rabbitry page on Facebook and look for our podcast, Best in Show, at whichever platform you listen to, whether it's Audible, Podcasts, uh, in, in Apple form or Spotify, we are there and we'll see you in Louisville. Safe travels. While this podcast would not be possible without the American Rabbit Breeders Association, it does not constitute an official communication of the association. The information, viewpoints, and opinions expressed herein are those of the hosts and our guests and are not endorsed by the ARBA. To learn more about the ARBA, please visit www.arba.net.